John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, it says, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am. You cannot come. Remember that we broadly divided the seventh chapter of John into three sections. The events before the feast in verses 1 through 9. The events during the feast which occupy from verse 10 all the way to verse 36. And then the events of the last day of the feast which basically run from verses 32 all the way through 53. And the events that, were, that are taking place during the, the feasts of tabernacles or the feast of booths. In the Hebrew language it was called the feast of Sukkot, which commemorated the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel and during, during the time of, of, of their, their journey. Now, when the feast is in full swing... Jesus shows up and he begins to teach in the temple in verse 14. Remember the chapter began with the lingering doubts from his own family concerning the nature of Jesus and his ministry in verses 1 through 9. And then it continued with this raging debate among the religious leaders and the regular Jew in the crowd over the character of Jesus in verses 10 through 36 and the doctrine of Jesus in verses 14 through 18, the works of Jesus in verses 19 through 24, and now the focus, the origin of Jesus in verses 25 through 31, and the destiny of Jesus in, in verses 32 through 36. On Friday, I, I heard a friend of mine, Hugh Hewitt, he was discussing a book that was authored by a man named Shad Helmsetter entitled, Who Are You Really and What Do You Want? What a great title. Who are you really and what do you want? The book, as far as I know, has really nothing to do with Jesus. It's a self-help book that's based on three principles. Number one, if you want to do your best, get a coach. Um, self-help works better if you have help. Uh, number two, change your self-talk and you will change your life. And number three, successful goal setting has to be implemented and tracked right along the way. Now, I haven't read the book, nor do I recommend the book at this point. I have no idea about it, but the book made me think about Jesus. Because when I looked at that book, title, Who Are You Really and What Do You Want? It made me ask and answer the question, Who am I really and what do I want? And if I am really a Christian, do I really want to follow Jesus? Do I really want to put Him first in all things? Do I really want to follow His teaching? Do I really want to experience fruitfulness? Do I really want to display the love of Jesus Christ to others? 
Do I want to make Him known among other people? Do I want to obey Him? Remember, Jesus tells us that obedience is the key that unlocks the mystery of God's will for our lives. Do you remember in verse 17? Read it again. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. Jesus has let the people know. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Then do God's will. And you set in motion a series of circumstances. Know God's will. Do God's will. Know God's will. Do God's will. And what is God's will? For Jesus. The Feast of Sukkot takes place from 15 to 21 in the month of Tishri, which in the Jewish calendar was September and October. The Jewish Passover or Pesach takes place on the 14th of Nisan, about March or April. In six months, I want to orient you in the Gospel of John and in the seventh chapter of of John. In six months, Jesus will be arrested. He will be tried. He will be convicted. He will be killed. He has six months to live from this moment on. It is God's will that he go to Jerusalem. It's God's will that he will die for the sin of humanity. It is God's will that Jesus will be brought back to life in a glorious resurrection. What's God's will for your life? What would you do if you knew that you only had six months to live? If for whatever reason you were a part of that crowd that that somehow a doctor diagnoses you with a terminal illness, you have six months to live. What are you going to do? What goals and dreams have been left unfulfilled? Are you going to visit an exotic place? Are you going to jump out of an airplane? Are you going to kiss the most beautiful woman in the world? I've already done that. Are you going to witness some majestic sight? Now, I want you to just pause for just a moment as you think about what you would do with your life. What will Jesus do with the precious time he has left? He'll forgive an adulterous woman in chapter 8. He'll preach several more sermons. He'll heal a man born blind in John chapter 9. He'll preach a sermon that we've come to know as the Sermon of the Good Shepherd, where Jesus tells us that the good shepherd knows his sheep, leads his sheep, talks with his sheep, saves the sheep, satisfies the sheep, dies for the sheep, unites the sheep, uh, and he'll travel. Jesus will go the distance from Perea to Caesarea Philippi. He will there announce that that he is the Lord and the King. He'll move from Philippi to Mount Hermon where, where he will meet Moses and Elijah and he'll be transfigured before the very eyes of, of Peter, James, and John. He'll go from Hermon to Capernaum where Peter will catch a fish with a coin in his mouth. He'll preach a sermon on humility and hell and the disciples will ask Jesus about the nature and the purpose of forgiveness. And one third of the New Testament will be devoted to the last two weeks of his life. He will share the parables that you've come to know and love. He'll perform more miracles. He'll raise Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. He'll speak to a rich young ruler. He'll greet and save Zacchaeus. He'll he'll be anointed by Mary of Bethany. But he will go to Jerusalem. And he will die. Look at verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now, remember, the question has already been asked and answered. Remember at the opening of chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. The short answer, is this not he whom they seek to kill? What's the answer? What's the short answer? Yeah! You know, it's interesting that the text doesn't give us the answer, but we know the answer, don't we? Isn't this the guy that they're trying to kill? Remember, 
to ask the right question. Why do they want to kill him? Do you remember? Why is it that they want him dead? It's because he claims to be from God. Over and over, that's what we've seen in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and throughout chapter 7. The claim is that he has come from God with a message of from God. And because he's come from God with a message from God, they don't like his message. He claims to come from God with a message of God. And here's the message. That God loves you. That he sent the Savior, the Messiah, to come and die in your place. And that if you'll place your confidence and your trust in him, you'll be saved. Question. Is that message true? Is Jesus the sinless Son of God sent by God to save humanity? Now, you have to understand something. The willingness of the religious leaders to kill Jesus tells us something about the condition of the human heart. They want to kill him because they reject his message. And they want to be saved on their own terms. They want to be saved their own way. According to their own religious thinking. The natives of Jerusalem were well aware that a conspiracy existed to kill Jesus. Now I'm going to ask you kind of a difficult question. Is it God's will that Jesus go to Jerusalem and die? The answer is yes. Is it clearly the intention of the religious leaders to kill Jesus? Yes. So why not die now? Why not just die and get it over with? God and the religious leaders want exactly the same thing. Do they really? No, they really don't. Because Jesus will live and Jesus will die on God's terms and not on anybody else's terms. And do you realize that the same is true for you? You will live and you will die on one of two terms, your own or God's. John MacArthur writes, Yet those same leaders had listened in paralyzed silence as Jesus openly condemned their hypocrisy in verse 19 and verses 21 through 24. Perhaps the authorities feared debating him in public, knowing that they would come out on the losing end, or they may have been awed by his commanding presence, remembering how he boldly cleansed the temple. But look at verse 26. But look. He speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They ask a second question. The first question, isn't this the guy they want to kill? What's the answer? Yes. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? What's the answer? No, they don't know that. Some people were genuinely puzzled. Why did the religious leaders allow Jesus to continue to teach? If they really want him dead, and if they really hate what he's saying, why do they continue to let him teach? By the way, the word translated where it says, but look, he speaks boldly. The word boldly can mean openly. It can mean confidently. We might even translate this word publicly. The common crowds are amazed at the religious leaders' hypocrisy and duplicity and speechlessness, but at the Lord's fearlessness. Hey, what's going on here? And when they ask the question, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? We know the answer. They don't really know that he's the Christ. But how would you answer the question? Do you really know the answer? Have you come to a place in your life where you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord? I want to help you with something. Why is it 
that the religious leaders do not know that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to suggest something to you. The reason why they do not know that Jesus is the Christ is because they don't want to know. Have you ever met someone who you were talking about Jesus with them and you said, hey, you know, did you know that Jesus Christ is the Lord? No, I don't want to know. I don't know and I don't care and I don't want to know. Let's just end the conversation right now. Well, what is it about Jesus that you find so annoying and upsetting? Well, I've come to the conclusion that if Jesus is who he says he really is, then that changes everything. (laughs) That's true, isn't it? If Jesus really did come from God with a message from God, and if that message is true, it will change everything. What is it about us that so resists the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think it's because of the condition of the human heart. It is wicked. It is corrupt. Look at their excuse in verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now you have to understand something. Some of the local Jews came to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't really God's Messiah. And what disqualified him from being the Messiah? Well, we know his origin. They, they knew all about his family. They knew about the village where he grew up in. They, they concluded, look, we know the village. He, he comes from Nazareth. This is the guy whose father is Joseph, whose mother is Mary, whose brother is James and Joseph and Jude and his sisters. We know where he's from. We conclude that he's just an ordinary human being. In their minds, there is nothing unusual about his origin. Now, there was a combination of misinformation and popular legend in the first century. The rabbis would teach the people over and over again that no one knew where the Messiah would come from and that he would just suddenly appear on the scene. This combination of misinformation and popular legend has in part its roots in Isaiah 53 verse 8 and Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. It is true that in Isaiah 53 verse 8 it says who will declare his generation and Malachi 3 1 the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple unquote. And it was interpreted as meaning that the Messiah would be unknown until he suddenly appeared to redeem Israel and the author of an apocryphal book. It was, it's actually called Fourth Esdras wrote, he said to me, just as no one can explore or know what is the depths of the sea, no one on earth can see my son or those who are with him except in the time of his day. And the rabbis interpreted that to mean that you can't know where he's coming from. Now again, the scriptures clearly point that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That the Messiah would be a Jew. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would become from the city of David. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, and I quote, No, the rulers do not believe that he is the Christ, do they? They were able to defend their conclusion with logic, number one. Nobody knows where the Christ comes from. Number two, we know where Jesus of Nazareth comes from. Number three, conclusion, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. Once again, the people couldn't see the truth because they were blinded by what they considered to be dependable facts. The same is true today. People are blinded by what they consider to be dependable facts. Here's what they say. Well, we can't really know God. You know, no one can really know God. I mean, he may be there, he may not be there. Well, we can't really know. Besides, if evolution is true and we think that it is true, then we originated on the back of crystals 
or we form somehow spontaneously or somehow life was seeded from another planet. And then there was a circumstance where through genetic engineering we find ourselves in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Is there a reliable basis for right and wrong? We can't even be sure that we can know the truth. But Jesus says, all of that's false. You can know the truth. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Is it wrong to question? Is it wrong to reason? Of course it's not wrong to question. Of course it's not wrong to reason. We have to question and we have to use our brain. But in the course of questioning and in the course of reasoning, it doesn't make good sense to come to a false conclusion. Can we trust what Jesus has said? Can we know the truth? Is Jesus the one who was promised by God? Look at verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. So how does Jesus respond to those who question him? to those who doubt Him, to those who deny Him, to those who disbelieve in Him. His answer is truly rooted and grounded in the question concerning His origin. Who is He really and where did He come from? By the way, when it says, then Jesus cried out, that word cried out is ekratsin in, in the Greek language. It means to shout. It means to throw your voice. He's shouting. He's speaking so that he can be heard by all. This isn't gentle Jesus whispering in a corner. He is shouting as loud as his holy voice will project. And he's shouting in such a way because he wants anyone and everyone willing to hear the answer to hear the answer. And here's what he's shouting. It is true. I am a man. You both know me. And you know where I am from. It's true. I'm real and I'm here. You know me and you know where I came from. Yes, Jesus was born of a woman. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Yes, Jesus was raised in Nazareth. But that's not all, is it? Is there more? You know, it's interesting to me, even at this point, he doesn't go, hey, you know, um, I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but I was born of a virgin. You see my mom, this angel appeared, and, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and, and you got to understand something, that Joseph really is my stepdad. Um, he's not my physical, biological dad. Um, basically, they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecy because the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, if you'll bother to take the time to read Matthew and Luke, you'll discover the genealogies that trace my descent through my mom, Mary, that I am the biological hereditary heir of the king of the throne of David, and I am also the the uh, crown prince through my stepfather's line, and I am the rightful heir of the throne. He doesn't do any of that. But he does say that there's more. There's much more. Look at number, number one. It's true. He's a man and more. Number two, and I have not come of myself. Remember, his mission and his message comes from somewhere else, from someone else. 
And I have not come of myself. See it for yourself. Listen to what Jesus claims about himself. Jesus didn't fabricate or invent or plot or plan his ministry. Jesus didn't set out to invent the Jesus movement. To glorify himself. Or to build up a huge following. But he who sent me is true. He's saying that the Father who is God sent him and that God is true. Someone sent Jesus, someone who is true, whoever he is and whatever he is, whoever he is and whatever he is, he is the embodiment of truth. So Jesus doesn't just simply suggest the existence of truth but that there is a reality of truth and that this God is the reality of truth. And look what else he says. You do not know him. Can you imagine anything more inflammatory to say to an observant Jew? You don't know him. What are you talking about? I'm an observant Jew. We practically invented this thing called religion. Hello? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Look at the half. Look at the phylacteries. Who is more Jewish than me? Who is more observant than me? Who is more religious than me? But Jesus says this thing that is so unbelievably coarse. You don't know him. Why would he say such a thing? Because he makes knowledge of the true and the living God dependent on knowledge of the true Son of God. No wonder John, years later, will write, He who has the Son has the Father, but he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. The religious leaders and some of the common crowd didn't know him. That is, they didn't really know God because if they really knew God, they would recognize and they would see the mission of Jesus and they would see the work of Jesus and they would see the words of Jesus and they would recognize that they come from God. They would know that it was by God's perfect love and God's perfect power and God's perfect plan that Jesus did and said what he did and said. Earlier in John chapter 16, verse 3, Jesus said, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. That is the truth about me. And then look in verse 29. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus was face to face with the Father. The knowledge of God isn't just cerebral. It isn't just theological. It isn't just philosophical. This word is a knowledge of a person based on an intimate relationship. I know him. For I am from him. He claims to have proceeded from God. And and number three, I know him. Jesus told how he knew God. And and that's part of the question we should ask. What do you mean you know him? What do you mean he knew God because he came from God? That is, he had come from God's very presence. That's what he's saying. He's literally saying, I proceeded forth and came from God. You know how we know that? It's reiterated in John chapter 8, verse 42. Turn the page of your Bible to John 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. Being face to face with the Father, He knew God, He was sent by God, that means he was commissioned by God to live and proclaim the truth about God before men. And we pause for just a second. That's either true or it's false. 
He made it up, and Christianity is a big, fat, stinking, fabricated lie. Or he really did proceed from the Father. Now look at the reaction of the religious leaders. (laughs) Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Therefore, they sought to take him. You know what that means? Arrest him. Physically restrain him. To take him and to shut him up. In other words, they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not come. Why not just refute his claims? Why not just simply prove from the Bible that what he said was false? They were unable to refute his claims. They were unable to prove that what he said was untrue. The Lord God intervened because look what it says. His hour had not yet come. God had unfinished business for Jesus. Remember what I said? How much time does he have to live from here on in? Six months. Does God have unfinished business in the ministry of Jesus? Yeah. Will an adulterous woman in John chapter 8 be given forgiveness in life? Will a man's eyes be opened and and will the most amazing sermons that have ever been preached still come out of his mouth? God has unfinished business for Jesus. And that should cause each and every person to remind themselves the servant of the Lord will not die until the Lord has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished. Do you realize that you're sort of bulletproof until God is done with you? And when God is done with you, guess what? Nothing can save you. Nothing will keep you from that destiny that God has established for you. I understand that there was a survey taken by over a thousand people that if they were asked if they could know the time of their death, 97% said I don't want to know. Question. If you could, or 96% or something like that. Now, I don't need necessarily a show of hands. But if you could know the precise month and the precise day and the precise hour of your death, would you want to? Would you want to know? Okay, let's do a little experiment here. How many of you would not, I repeat, not want to know? Okay. How many of you, I repeat, would, I repeat, would want to know? Good luck with that. And I don't even believe in luck. Luck is what I think a fool calls it when God gives him a break. John contrasts the response of the crowd with the religious leaders. They don't believe in him. Not only do they not believe in him, they become enemies of Jesus. And look at verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Third question. If Jesus isn't really the Christ, and if we are still looking forward to someone who may be the Christ, Will the Christ do more signs than those which this man has done? Now, at the beginning of verse 31, and it says, And many of the people believed in him. The word translated people is the Greek noun aklos. Now, that that noun is, is a very interesting noun because it 
is translated crowds. As a matter of fact, in, in the verse 31, in the New Living Translation, it says, Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? Rudolf Meyer writes, and I quote, the term aklos acquires a special sense in John's gospel. The word aklos is especially common in John chapter 7 and John chapter 12. In John chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus is sought by the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews are akloi in verse 12. What is meant in verse 11 is the Jewish public. There's a further reference to the Jews in verses 15 through 19 where they debate with Jesus. And in verse 20, akloss is used again for the Jewish crowd. In verse 31, however, the Pharisees are contrasted with the multitude. Many in the multitude, many in the crowd believe in Jesus so that the high priest and the scribes are forced to take action against him. References again made to the crowds in verses 40 through 49 in connection with the speech which Jesus makes on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The crowd being, if you will, the common people who hear Jesus gladly. Here's the deal. Some believed. And they believed on the limited basis, number one, of his claims and of his miracles. Jesus was, or Nicodemus was the first to drawn to Jesus because of the miracles. Eventually, he would openly confess and profess Jesus. In, in chapter 3, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one could do the things that you have done unless God was with him. I want to consider the question for just a moment. If Jesus isn't the Messiah... Will someone come along who's had a greater impact, who will do more signs and more miracles than Jesus? Question. Have you ever heard of anybody who had a larger impact than Jesus? Has anyone made the kind of cultural, social, historical effects on humanity as Jesus? By the way, the four Gospels record some 35 separate miracles. And each Gospel writer says Jesus performed many more miracles that weren't even recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. In Mark chapter 6, verse 56. In Luke chapter 6, verse 19. In John chapter 20, verse 30. And most of the miracles were open and public and visible to both believer and unbeliever, to devoted follower and defiant skeptic. No one, no one, listen carefully, no one in the New Testament denied that Jesus had miraculous powers. Do you know what the big debate was? Where do those powers come from? They couldn't refute what he was doing. All they could argue is, where does this power come from? Lord Byron said, if ever man was God or God man, Jesus Christ was both. So how do we answer the question? There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. That's the point that John is making in this gospel. There is no one like Jesus. And because there's no one like Jesus, it should compel you to believe in him. Will someone else fulfill more messianic prophecies given in the scripture? Will someone else say greater things than Jesus? Will someone else have a greater influence? Will someone else inspire more than Jesus? Thomas Brooks captures the sentiment when he says, quote, he is a portion that exactly and directly suits the condition of the soul, the desires of the soul, the necessities of the soul, the wants of the soul, the prayers of the soul. The soul can crave nothing nor wish for nothing but what is to be found in Christ. He is light to enlighten the soul, wisdom to counsel the soul, power to support the soul, goodness to supply the soul, mercy Mercy to pardon the soul, beauty to delight the soul, glory to ravish the soul, fullness to fill the soul, unquote. Isn't that good? No wonder Paul would write, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. 
Has anyone done more? Has anyone convinced more? Has anyone forgiven more sin? Has anyone bound up more broken hearts? Has anyone restored more marriages? Has anyone made a greater impact on the face of humanity? There's no one. And look at verse 32. The sensational destiny of Jesus. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. You know what happens? They sent the cops to go arrest Jesus. And when the cops got there, guess what happened? They started listening to what Jesus said and they wanted to join him. Can you imagine being the chief of police and you send a bunch of guys to go out to arrest this guy? (laughs) And the, the police officers wind up joining his cult. Later on, they'll say, hey, how come you didn't arrest Jesus like we wanted you to? Hey, never a man spoke like this man. Look what it says in verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. The ministry of Jesus is only going to last for a short time. It's only going to last six more months. They're going to search for him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to try to obtain from him what they what only he could give, but then it's going to be too late. He's going to be gone. There's going to come a time when they are not going to have access to Jesus. In verse 34, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The religious leaders wanted Jesus to know. You're in danger. You're upsetting the apple cart. We're going to have you arrested. We're going to have you killed. Jesus wants the religious leaders to know they're the ones who are in trouble. Not him. I want you to think carefully. Does Jesus know where he's come from? Yes. He's come from God. Where's he going? Back to God. Jesus knows where they came from. Even you don't know the answer to that. Jesus knows the truth about how he created you, how he formed you, and where you are going when you die. Jesus wants the religious leaders to know you're in trouble. One Bible writer, Barclay, writes, and I quote, This passage brings us face to face with the promise and the threat of Jesus. Jesus had said, seek and you will find in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Now he says, you will seek me and you will not find me in verse 34. Long ago, the ancient prophet had put the two things together in a wonderful way. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. It's a characteristic of this life that time is limited. Physical strength decays. There are things that a man can do at 30. Amen. That he can't do at 60. Amen. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Are you looking for him? Have you found him? Where I'm going, you can't go. This is a reference to the death, the burial, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And clearly the religious leaders have zero comprehension of what he's saying. They couldn't grasp and believe that he's the Messiah. In fact, the concept of Messiah dying and then coming back as a glorified being is actually offensive to them. As a matter of fact, earlier in chapter 6, verse 62, remember what Jesus said. Then what will you think if you see me, the Son of Man, return to heaven again? He makes it abundantly clear where he's going. Jesus knew he was going back to heaven. Jesus knew that the religious leaders wouldn't be following him there. Did you know that not everybody goes to heaven? The Bible says that heaven is a real place. It's called the Father's house. 
And the people who go there know the Father and love the, the Father and they've been accepted by the Father. And they're known and loved by the Father because they're known and they're loved by the Son. Whatever else we can glean from this section, we can glean that the servant of the Lord can't be held back from the work of the Lord. Jesus will accomplish what Jesus has set out to do, and he will do it on God's timetable. And God will accomplish what God has set out to accomplish in your life. You're on God's timetable. The Lord surrounds His servants. Nothing can touch Jesus until the accomplished task is finished. And guess what? Nothing can touch you. Nothing can come between you and your Father until your Father is finished with you. And in verse 35, then the Jews said, Where does He intend to go that we won't find Him? Does He intend to go to the diaspora among the Greeks? The diaspora was the dispersion among the Hebrew people in the Mediterranean rim and largely Hellenistic cultures. And so these were Hebrew people by culture and by birth, but who largely lived in a Hellenist world. And so the idea is, is Jesus going to run away? Is he going to leave Jerusalem? Is he going to go to India? Is he going to go to Babylon? Is he going to go to Rome? Is he going to go somewhere where he can teach his bizarre doctrine and be left alone by the religious leaders? In verse 36, what is this thing? He said, you will seek me and not Find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The religious leaders are genuinely puzzled by what Jesus meant. Again, Barclay writes, you can awaken to a sense of need too late. A man may so long refuse Christ that in the end he doesn't even see the beauty of Jesus. Evil becomes as good and repentance becomes impossible so long as sin still hurts us and the unattainable good still beckons us. The chance to seek and find is still there, but a man must have a care. Lest he grow used to sin. So used to sin that he doesn't know that he's sinning and neglect God so long that he forgets that God exists. For then the sense of need dies. And if there is no sense of need, we cannot seek. And if we cannot seek, we will never find. Unquote. If you lose the sense of sin... If you're no longer convicted by the pain of your rebellion, if you no longer care about whether or not God cares about you, then you're in big trouble. You know, I read many things when I was preparing this message. I typed in, if I had six months to live, what would I do? And I came up all kinds of different things. I would go to Tahiti. I would go here. I would go there. I would do this. I would do that. I would make it right with my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. I would do this. I would do that. I would travel here. I would go there. I would try to resolve this. I would try to resolve that. But out of all of the things that I saw, you know what? Not one person, not even one person said, if I had six months to live, I'd get right with God. I found that astonishing. If I had six months to live, you know what I would do? I would put Jesus first in everything. Wouldn't you? If you had six months to live, wouldn't you want to know and follow Jesus? If you had six months to live, wouldn't you want to produce fruit in your life every day? If, if you had six months to live, wouldn't you want to abide in Jesus? The Holy Spirit produces the fruit and the fruit is the result of our obedience. As we become obedient to the Lord, we learn and we grow and we walk in his ways and we change. If you had six months to live. Would you want to be exactly the same way that you are right now? We share our faith with those who don't believe. 
If I had six months to live, you want to know what I would want to do? I would want to tell people about Jesus every day. I would want to encourage them, motivate them. I would want to to remind them that heaven is a real place, that the visible will one day become unseen and the unseen will one day become visible. I would want to tell them that God has a plan and a purpose, that sin is forgivable and Jesus Christ is Lord. And then I would want to talk like Paul the Apostle who said, I have run the race, I have finished the course. There is in heaven a crown that has been set aside for me, a crown of righteousness, and not just for me, but everyone who loves Jesus and longs for his appearing. That's what I would want to do. By the way, even if I only had one day, left. That's what I would want to do. What do you want to do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we pray. We know, Lord, that this day will bring each and every one of us closer to heaven. Willingly or unwillingly. Reluctantly or not reluctantly. Each one of us has been pressed into a circumstance where we will find ourselves obeying you or disobeying you. Loving you or dishonoring you. Being used by you or selfishly indulging ourselves. Is it true? Is Jesus who he says he is? Heavenly Father, did did Jesus come from you with a message from you? And can we experience forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with you? Can we be accepted by you in Jesus? Heavenly Father, I know that every, every, every single chapter and every single verse in the New Testament points to the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. Lord, if there is someone else or something else, Lord, that someone else or that something else just doesn't seem to fit the bill that Jesus has quite completely fulfilled. And so, Lord, I pray that we would put our full and our complete confidence in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would give up the delusion and the illusion that there's some other way to be saved, that there's some other way to have a right relationship with you, that there's some other way to live. Lord, we know that there's only one way to live, your way. And that because Jesus died, we can now live forever. Lord, I pray that you would move on hearts, that you would move on souls. Lord, I pray that the sinner would hear your voice and turn from sin and receive you and believe you and love you and walk with you, whether they have one day or one week or one month or one year to live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.